Uh, We live close to each other, but we often don't know those who live near us. As a society, we're less accountable to our friends, our neighbors, and our churches. We've seen the dial on that turn to about a 10 the last couple of weeks in intensity. What is right in one's own eyes? What are you entitled to take? Can you do whatever you want to do? Can you take whatever is pleasing in your eyes? How can you have stores in a society when people feel like it's their right or even their duty to just take whatever they want? Or who honestly uh, believes that someone would want to have a store if all that stands to happen is all of their inventory is taken? What's troubling about this, of course, is that there's no moral basis uh, to appeal to, to say to someone anymore on a widespread scale that stealing is wrong. Why is it wrong to take something that is not yours, something that is not rightfully yours? There's There's no moral basis to say, well, well, God says that it's wrong. Is that really going to have much currency out in today's society? Certainly not what it used to have. People are taught that they need to decide what is right for themselves, what is true for themselves. But if this is actually true, the only place it ends up is chaos, right? And we've seen a lot of chaos recently. There's chaos in the story of Samson. And as you go through the accounts in Samson's life, in the book of Judges, it's, it's jolting in many ways. It feels different from the rest of Judges. We've now zeroed in, we've kind of zoomed in on Samson as, as a test case of this mindset. Samson is a man who does what is right in his own eyes. Samson is a man who takes whatever he thinks he wants and whatever seems right to him. It's a, it's a story, a tale of spiritual and moral bankruptcy in the context of a man who was set aside for the service of God. You can see how that operates on a widespread scale as a picture of Israel. Israel set apart for the service of God, but what do they continually do? They continually seek to do what is right in their own eyes. So Samson is like Israel. Samson is like Adam. He is an Adam that has gone wrong, set aside to serve God, a priestly service to act on God's behalf, but instead he takes what he wants. He does whatever he wants to do. He writes his own law. Our world and the events of recent days and weeks is the kind of thing that happens when everyone does what seems right to them. We consider all of those things today with these three points. First is the danger of seeing with your own eyes. The danger of seeing with your own eyes. And then second, the glory of seeing Christ with the eyes of faith. And then lastly, believing and living in the power of Christ. First, the danger of seeing with your own eyes. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Many of you know what becomes a refrain by the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And sadly, this comes to include the judges themselves. We've seen the judges 
have a, a downgrade in, in morality and spirituality as Judges has gone on. Of course, ending with the case of, uh, of recently even of Jephthah who uh, sacrificed his own daughter. Samson, of course, is another uh, link in this chain. After his uh, miraculous birth, we fast forward in his life. Now he is an adult. We know that the spirit of the Lord is, is working in Samson, but, it, but it's different than what we've seen uh, elsewhere in Judges. We see here that the spirit of the Lord at the end of chapter 13 is stirring in Samson. And the word there evokes an image almost like um, getting a bull riled up in a rodeo. It's like putting an animal into fury. It's a, it's a different verb there of what the spirit is doing in Samson. And I think that's relative to the story of Judges as a whole. That we're in a place of such spiritual and moral bankruptcy that the way that God is working now in and through a man like Samson who is a judge in Israel, he's, he's working within the moral bankruptcy of the age. So God is seeking an opportunity to stir up strife between the Israelites and the Philistines because he doesn't want his people to be subject to the Philistines, but he's working with a figure like Samson and doing it in unique ways. We lose, really, I think, the the, the key to this whole chapter, we lose it in our translation. Uh, The New International Version describes that when Samson sees this woman from Timnah, He says something like, she's right for me. And I think in verse 7 it says, uh, he went down to see her and he liked her. In both instances, what is actually being said there is Samson, as he appeals to his parents, get this woman for my wife, she is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. The term for right there is something that's usually associated with moral rectitude, straightness uprightness, just kind of like the the aisle of our church, perfectly straight, something that's perfectly straight, there are no veers off the course, it's right, it's morally right. And Samson says, she is right in my eyes. So he kind of takes that term and he flips it on its head. It's good for me to decide what's good for myself. This is very distressing to his parents. They know that Samson was a miracle child. Remember, as his parents had not conceived, God blesses them with a child. They say, God says to them, your your son will be a deliverer. He will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Now he's a man, and rather than working to deliver from the Philistines, what is he doing? He is marrying them. He wants to fraternize with them and to associate with them and to become family with them. Why do you want to do this, his parents ask. We read that it's from God, but I think there we have to, we have to remember again that because of the, the, the moral bankruptcy of the situation, God is working in Samson, sort of stirring him up to create strife because the Israelites have gotten comfortable to live with the Philistines. There's no longer any instinct to banish them from the promised land. And that's a picture of what sin does, right? Oftentimes when we think about the book of Judges, we're thinking about what sin does to the human heart. If you live together with sin long enough, and you become used to it, and you become comfortable with it, your instincts to expel it from your life will go away. They will become so dull that you will have no sense to do it at all. 
And so God, uh, to deliver his people, is having to create all kinds of strife and hatred between the Israelites and the Philistines. So Samson says, this woman is right in my eyes. What, is a, what does a parent say? What does a parent say to that? Well, some parents today, uh, in today's world, might be confused what you would say to that. Samson's parents, it's really not that difficult. Samson's parents could very easily say what looks good or what feels good in any moment is, is not necessarily right. In fact, oftentimes it is not right. We get no such parenting here, only, only acquiescing to his demands. And so the fear of alienating their son causes them to compromise morally. So he goes to see her. Eventually the wedding gets arranged and uh, he marries this Philistine woman. He takes what he wants because it's right in his eyes. First we have the woman, then we have this interaction with the lion. And and the lion uh, further develops this picture of Samson as as a taker, as an Adam gone wrong. As a tyrant. Remember, Adam was supposed to exercise dominion over the world. Here, we don't see him, uh, Samson, exercising dominion. He is at odds with the creation. Samson encounters this threat, a wild animal. A lion in the vineyard would be a very odd thing. And so here you have a wild animal that's transgressing boundaries, going into a vineyard where you wouldn't expect to find it. I think here we have a really interesting picture of uh, the way that Samson is like a wild animal himself. Just like the lion, he transgresses boundaries. Just like the lion is a threat to Samson's existence, so because of his animal instincts, he's a threat to himself. He cannot control his own sin and his own sinfulness. Nevertheless, he meets this lion we once again see a mysterious work of the Spirit. The Spirit rushes upon Samson, the Holy Spirit, and endows him with such magnificent magnificent strength that he's able to uh, tear this lion into pieces. And that's certainly a divine gift of strength. We're not talking about any normal human strength. So the Spirit is at work, but in, in interesting and and odd ways relative even to the rest of Judges. We don't read that the Spirit comes upon Samson or that Samson is clothed with the Spirit like we see in other places. It rushes upon Samson. And then furthermore, we have this picture of, of the honey. To eat this honey that Samson takes from the lion's body would be wrong at least on two counts. Any Israelite would agree that food found inside a dead animal carcass is unclean. That is, that's unclean. You cannot eat that. And for a Nazarite like Samson is, he has this heightened expectation to never eat anything unclean. And yet he does. So it's wrong on two counts. The picture that you get there is that Samson will transgress almost any boundary. He, he doesn't care what the rules are. He doesn't care what he's supposed to do. He compounds sin upon sin by giving this honey to his parents and he doesn't tell them that it's unclean, so he defiles his parents as well. Samson is an Adam gone wrong because he does the same thing that we read in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve did, where they see and they take and they eat. It's the same thing that that Samson does here. He sees, he takes, and he eats. So Samson is like Adam many, many generations on. He decides for himself 
And you see the way that sin permeates in his life. He just takes whatever he wants. This is the way that all sin operates, isn't it? Seeing, taking, and eating. The seeing connects to the desire that you have inside of this, the, the sinfulness of your heart. The taking, taking it in, the eating. This is what sin is. We see the foolishness in all of this. The uh, doing what's right in your own eyes. Leaning on your own understanding. Not acknowledging the ways of God. Not leaning on him for instruction and for new life. This is a picture of sinfulness. Secondly, our second point then today is the glory of seeing Christ with the eyes of faith. The first is the the foolishness of seeing with your own eyes. And secondly, the glory of seeing Christ with the eyes of faith. Is anyone going to serve God if what you do most of the time is doing what is right in your own eyes? No, of course not. It's a recipe for disaster. You see and you take and you eat. And that is what you do. I was thinking about the the, the way in which this is such a a potent picture of sin. Seeing, taking, and eating. I'm trying to think, what what are the ways in which this connects to Jesus Christ? What are the ways in which this points us to our Savior? And my mind kept coming back to that place where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And also at the Last Supper, where there's a a three-stage picture to what Jesus does for us in salvation. When he feeds the 5,000 and when he distributes the Last Supper, what does he do? He gives gives thanks, he breaks, and he gives. And Samson, as an Adam gone wrong, sees and takes and eats. Jesus Christ, as our righteous Savior, gives thanks, he breaks, and he gives. All three of those are an answer in some way to what Samson does. Giving thanks to the Father. What what, what is prayer? When Jesus is praying in the dependence of his human nature upon his heavenly Father, what is he showing? He's, He's showing trust. He's showing faith. He's showing dependence. Asking for help from the Father. Not seeing with his own eyes, as as sinners so often do. Trusting our earthly senses and then taking what looks good to us. So prayer acknowledges dependence. And then the breaking is a picture of Christ's self-sacrifice. His obedient sacrifice to give himself for sin and for sinners. And then rather than taking and eating, he gives. You see, the first Adam is a taker. Sinfulness is about taking The second Adam, the last Adam, is a giver. First Adam is a taker. The second Adam is a giver. And that is the life of Christ. And to see that with the eyes of faith is to see, first, redemption, and second, life. You see, when Jesus gives salvation, he's giving something that is already accomplished. He's giving something that is already completed. That the work of the cross is not just Jesus sort of opening the door and saying, okay, now salvation is possible. No, the work on the cross, the work of Jesus Christ is accomplishing salvation for us. The wonder of the Christian life and the wonder of the Christian faith is that redemption happens first and worship follows it. A life of worship, a life of service follows the redemption that happens in the gospel. You look at any other faith system, any other religion in the world, And what happens is the exact opposite. There's a life of prescribing worship, rituals of worship, that leads you to redemption at the end. But Christianity knows that there's a Samson in all of us. Christianity knows that there is an Adam 
in all of us that will see and take and eat. And in order for us to live lives that glorify God, redemption has to happen at the first. And so that's why in Christ, when we see him, we see redemption, and then we also see life. And that brings us to our last point, believing and living in the power of Christ. Believing and living in the power of Christ. This story is certainly strange to our modern ears. Samson goes and they have this wedding. There's this feast that goes on about seven days, which would probably be laced with all of these Philistine pagan rituals and certainly gluttony in both eating and drinking, all kinds of of paganism. And there's this interesting interaction with this riddle. Uh, Samson poses a challenge. And he gives them this riddle that harkens back to his killing of the lion. Right? Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. He proposes this riddle, and it's interesting to think about that this riddle is impossible for the men to solve unless they're able to sort of break into the, the defense of, of Samson. Samson says, I have not told this riddle to anyone. I haven't said it to my mom or my dad. Nobody knows the answer. And so when his wife comes and is begging, please tell me, so, you know, just tell me the answer. You're rejecting me. You're not loving me. Samson says, no, I, I've, I've not told anyone this answer. It's interesting to think about, isn't it, that the only reason that Samson is able, or the men are able to get the best of Samson in this instance, is, um, is because they're able to break into his weakness. Where's the one place that Samson is weak? It's with his passion for women. His passion for women will be his undoing. And it's because of that passion that he has not been careful to avoid sin. It made me think of one of those devotional videos that I've been doing during the week where we've been going through Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And there's that one device, the way that Satan tempts us to say, you can, you can go up until the border of sin and you'll be strong enough to not actually cross into the border of sinfulness. You have nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. You're strong enough uh, to avoid it altogether. And that's absolutely against uh, the biblical mindset. It's Psalm 26 verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. Samson is a man who is set apart for the service of God, has completely rejected that call, and is willing time and time and time again, day after day, to go where he will be tempted to sin, to transgress this boundary and that boundary, to put sinfulness and temptation before him and to fall into its trap. Sin is a liar. Samson's wife was lying to him. Please just tell me. It's, a, it's for you to prove that you love me, that you're going to tell me. She was lying to him. What does sin do to your heart? Sin lies to you. Doing this will feel good. God will certainly forgive you. It's fine. Virtuous people do this as well. Think of all the ways in which people commit worse sins than this. Sin lies to you day after day after day. Perhaps many of us feel uh, that our lives are sort of ordered the way that Samson is. That he had this guarantee that if he does not utter the words, the answer to this riddle, he would have been fine. But he falls prey to his one weakness. 
I think it's interesting to think about that there, there, there's certainly a lesson in what's going on here with Samson. That we have certain promises in Scripture that if we do certain things, we will not fall into the trap of the lies of sin. For instance, there are no temptations that come upon us that are too great for us to resist. 1 Corinthians 10. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Many of us feel like we have this weakness like Samson that will continually fall prey to. But the Bible promises us that any temptation we face is not too great for us to overcome by the power of God. The second is this. If you are walking by the Spirit, and whatever that means, is something that we would need to unpack more fully in the time that we have today. But, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not sin. Galatians 5. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One of the things that we ought to do is to pray to God, teach me to walk by the Spirit. Allow me to walk by the Spirit that I would not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the third thing is this. For those in Christ, you are no longer slaves to sin. You have been made slaves to righteousness. Romans 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Again, go back to the picture of the Christian life. Where is redemption found? It's at the beginning of the Christian life. Christ has redeemed you. He has set you free. Sin no longer has dominion over you. So what do you do? You serve God in the freedom of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Just like Samson had a guarantee over his life. If you do not utter the words, the answer to this riddle, you will be fine. So we have a guarantee in our life, if you do these things, you will not fall into the trap of sin and into uh, the misery of temptation's snares. No temptation is too great for you to overcome when you're trusting in Christ and abiding in Him. Walking by the Spirit means you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 6 tells you sin has no dominion over you. And so perhaps you say, well, okay, that's fine. But in my experience, in my life, I continually feel that I fall under the power of this sin or this pattern of sin, this kind of temptation I'm always falling prey to. I'm plagued by these patterns of anger, of bitterness, the way that I speak towards others. I'm plagued by these secret sins that no one knows about and I'm ashamed of them, but I continue to fall prey to them. And so in the experience of my life, I cannot say that sin has no dominion over me. And here's the mystery of the Christian life. It becomes God's word against yours. God says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. God says, no temptation has overtaken you which is not common to man. And that everyone, in everyone, God provides a way of escape. God says that sin will not reign over you. 
because you have been brought from death to life in Christ. So the, the, the challenge of the Christian life is will you live according to what God says and will you believe what God says about your life or will you believe the lies that your sinful nature tells you? Will you believe the lies that Satan tells you? Will you believe the lies that the world tells you that you can't serve God in any way that pleases him? Over all of Samson's life is this, this tension that he's living in the way that he wants to live. And so often, that's what happens when we're going off into patterns of, of sinfulness. I'm going to sort of veer off the path a little bit here and just sort of do what I want. And then I'll kind of come back and serve God. But at every point, what we're being reminded of is that God is sovereign over all of Samson's life. He is using the sin in Samson's life. He's using the bad decisions of Samson's life, all to create this animosity and strife between the Israelites and the Philistines so that God can bring about this greater redemption. Actually, all of this points forward to the greater one, the greater king, who will finally and fully deliver Israel from the Philistines, King David, who will slay the giant uh, in, in Goliath. But the same is true for us. Just like Samson, we're tempted to think, okay, serving God is over here, and then I kind of leave the path to do what I want, and then I can sin and sort of come back. And my challenge to you is to look at Samson's life, where God is using every single thing in his life, every event, every moment, he's using it for his purposes. And every moment of your life, God will use for his purposes. So wouldn't you have to take hold of that truth and say, I want to serve God each and every moment that he gives me. There's no sort of going off the path, hiding from his sovereign eye, doing what you want, what you think is right, following your instincts and doing what is right in your own eyes, and then kind of coming back and living in light of God's law. Every moment, God will use for his purposes. And it stands for us. To, to live and to believe in the power of Christ. If you have the power of Christ in you, and Christ is a giver, not a taker, Christ is a righteous man, not a sinner, then when the life of Christ is, is put into you by the power of the Spirit, then wouldn't you live righteously? Wouldn't you live with a hatred of sin? Wouldn't you live with a desire to serve God more and more with all of the days that he gives you? May it be so. For each and every one of us in this room. May we trust Christ. May we walk by the Spirit. May we glorify God in the, in the life that he gives to us in his glorious gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will make these truths effectual. And that we would live by them and live to honor and glorify you. We thank you and we praise you for the chance to meet together today. We pray that we would, that this meeting would honor and glorify you, that you would keep us safe, and that uh, you would give us opportunities more and more uh, to worship and serve you not only here, but everywhere in our lives. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, the better Samson, the greater Samson, the greater deliverer, the righteous one, the giver. And the one who gave thanks and, bro and was broken for us and who gives his life to us full and free. We pray in his name. Amen.
We'll sing two songs now.